welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. We are in a series uh, for this Advent season called Prepare the Way. And the word Advent, if you haven't been with us, means coming. And so this is a season uh, when we really prepare ourselves for Christ to come. And on one level, we're preparing ourselves for the celebration of Christ's first coming at Christmas. On another level, we're anticipating, looking forward to the day when Christ will come again and preparing ourselves for that reality. But this is also a time in which we're preparing ourselves for Christ to come into our lives in a fresh way, even here and now. And so this is a season of preparation. You might remember the line from the old Christmas carol, let every heart prepare him room. That, that is really the heartbeat of this season. Uh, I'm assuming that many of us are probably hosting people for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And so, of course, if you're having guests over, what do you need to do? You need to prepare. And, and so that's really, uh, really an image of what we're invited into in this season. And, and that's really always the call of the season of Advent. But just my sense for us is that there's a kind of a particular sense of urgency around this force that God is, is really up to something in our midst, but there's more in store. And so he wants us to really be ready and to use this as a really intentional time to prepare ourselves for that in this season. So I'm just excited about that and all, this, all that God has in store. Now, in case you haven't been with us, let me just briefly catch you up for where we've been in this series. So in this series, we're looking at letters that Jesus wrote to churches as found in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3. And there are seven uh, letters. Now, we only have four weeks, so we're just looking at four of them. Uh, this is the third week, so we're looking at the third letter in uh, the book. And you can put the map slide up on the screen. And so as you see here, here's kind of a slide showing a map of, of these churches and where they're located. Uh, John is writing this letter from Patmos, a little island. He's on ex- in exile here. Uh, first week, we looked at Jesus' letter to the church uh, in, in Ephesus. Uh, and, and, and there we, we saw that Jesus affirmed many things about this church, that this was a church that they were faithful to Jesus, they were, they were hard workers, but we also read that somewhere in, in, in the midst of all that, somewhere it's like they lost their love for Jesus, and so he's really calling them back to himself as, as, as their first love. And then last week, we looked at Jesus' church to the, letter rather, to the church in Smyrna, which is just north of Ephesus, and, and this is a church that had been faithful Faithful to Jesus amidst heavy, heavy persecution. And so Jesus' word to them was basically, way to go. Like, keep it up. Like, keep going. Just keep standing firm. And so he was just encouraging and sort of cheering them on. Now, one of the things that all these letters have in common is that they're written to churches that are seeking to follow Jesus in the context of a tremendously hostile environment, and namely the Roman Empire, right? Uh, now, some of these cities are facing more hostility than others, and in each city, it maybe looks a little bit different, but the same kind of overall dynamic is the same. And, and so Jesus' goal in all of these letters is really to help his people become what we might call resilient disciples, 
In other words, become followers of him who can really not only just survive, but even thrive amidst a culture where there's all sorts of pressures and challenges coming uh, against them. And, and I think these letters are really just so relevant for where we are uh, as, as a culture. I've been reading a new book by David Kinneman, who's the president of the Barna Group, and they just do some fantastic research. And his most recent book is called Faith uh, for Exiles. And what he argues in this book is that what the church in this moment needs, uh, quote, is to develop Jesus' followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion. Let me say that again, that what the church needs more than anything uh, to be about right now in this moment is to develop Jesus' followers who are resiliently faithful. In other words, who don't just crumble at the first sign of opposition or pressure coming against them, but who are resiliently faithful in the face of what he calls cultural coercion. Because that, that's really our situation. Now, let me just give some context here. Once upon a time uh, in America, it wasn't a Christian nation, but Christianity enjoyed uh, sort of a, a privileged place in society. And so much by way of cultural assumptions and values and practices actually served to reinforce uh, the faith. And just one example that's interesting, you might not know this, but actually most of the Ivy League schools were actually founded with the express purpose of raising up Christian ministers. Isn't that fascinating? Times have changed, right? Uh, another example, so my wife attended USC for, for undergrad, and so I snuck over there to kind of sit in on some classes because I was like all about that. And so um, on the exterior of, of the Mud School of Philosophy where she studied, there's actually etched in stone words of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It said, the truth shall set you free. And actually on the tops of some of the buildings there are actually statues of Methodist circuit riders. In other words, these are guys who would get on horseback and they'd ride from town to town preaching the gospel. But again, times have changed. Uh, and, and now you're much more likely to hear Jesus and his teachings sneered at, if not just completely trashed in those same contexts. At least that was my experience as an undergrad at, at Cal Poly. And that wasn't universally the case, but that, that was the norm, really, uh, in my situation. And so we now find ourselves in a situation uh, where there are cultural pressures actually going against the faith. They're just so strong that they're actually coercing many people out of the faith, which is why Kinman uses this language based on actually very in-depth research, and I might have to do a series on this sometime because it's so, I think, important. But basically, he, uh, but basically, so many people are just being kind of coerced out of the faith that he uses this language of cultural coercion. And so in light of that, the letter we're looking at today is just so relevant for our present moment. So Jesus is writing this letter to help the church at Pergamum uh, to be faithful to him amidst extreme cultural pressure. Now, just a little background on this city. Pergamum is located, you can go back to the map, is located in what we would now know as northern Turkey on the coast. It's about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And because of its location, it was a major trade route and uh, a major center for culture and for commerce. Uh, but this was also uh, a center, actually the center in this region for emperor worship. And actually the first temple to the Roman emperor was actually built in this city. And there are also significant temples in honor of Zeus and other uh, pagan uh, deities. Uh, but amidst all this is, is, a, is a church. 
a church that Jesus loves. And, and so he wants to in, encourage them in, in the ways they're really following him faithfully, but he also is writing to address some challenges that they are facing. And so this is kind of where the letter begins, and we're in Revelation chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or you can follow along on the screens. And the letter begins, as all these letters do, with a reference to Jesus. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, says this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So this is a, a reference to Jesus drawing on imagery that, that John saw when, when he was in this vision. He was in prayer one day and he had this vision. Jesus uh, appeared to him. And, and so this, what we read about in chapter one, John is kind of drawing from that language here because in that chapter, uh, John saw Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, now, I, I tried to find a, a good picture of this, but all I, uh, uh, of a sword, rather, but all I could find uh, was this. I don't know, so this is the closest thing I could find. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put that up there. Yeah. <laughs> so you could put it down. No. Just having some fun here. Just having some fun. Now, those aren't double-edged uh, swords, single-edged swords, but they were little mini kind of machetes or swords. So anyways, had some fun. There. By the way, if you weren't at the talent show, I just, you just missed out. I'm sorry. You missed out. That was some fun. But uh, it, it, so in this, in this text, the sword is, I want you to notice something. That it's actually, it's not in Jesus' hand. It's in his mouth. And that's, that's an important uh, distinction to notice. But you might want to know, what is the, the meaning of this? Well, I think there are at least a couple layers of meaning here. And the first, that this is an image of power and authority. So uh, the Roman proconsul in, in this city uh, would have had what was called the right of the sword, which meant that, that he could exercise the power and the authority of the Roman Empire at will. And so part of what's being revealed here is that Jesus, he, like, he's got like the sword of swords, and so what this is communicating to the church is that, hey, don't be afraid. I have power and authority over all those other powers and authority. So whatever this image is in the first part of the letter, it's always meant to encourage the church, okay? So that's, that's the first layer, but, but there's another layer of meaning here because this is also an image of truth that comes from Jesus' mouth. So Jesus said, I am the truth. And he also, he speaks truth. And in Hebrews chapter four, uh, verse 12, you can put the slide up. He uses the same language when it says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So this is the sword. It's an image of Jesus' power. It's an image of the truth that he carries. But the point here is to, he's, he's encouraging the church in Pergamum that this is who he is, that he's the one who actually has authority over all these other authorities and that he is the one who has the words of truth and, and life. And he is mighty on their behalf. And so this is kind of an encouragement on the front end. And so he begins this letter, however, uh, as he starts to address the church with, with a word really, of affirmation, uh, of encouragement. So verse 13 says this. He says, I know where you live. Now before he had said, I know your deeds, I know different things, but now he says, I know where you live. Where is that? Well, this is kind of wild. He says, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. 
So the first thing we see here is that this church in, in Pergamum, that they are living in the midst of an extremely hostile in, environment to their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's even described here as, quote, the place where, where Satan has his throne. Now, now what, is, what does that mean? Well, it's not totally clear. It could be a reference to the uh, temple of the emperor. Uh, it could also be a reference to the temple of Zeus, which had sort of like a throne-like altar in it. Uh, or it could just simply be a reference to the fact, really, that uh, Satan is especially active in uh, in this city. And, and regardless, though, the emphasis here is that Jesus is, is trying to, to help this church see that the persecution they've been experiencing uh, is actually part of a much bigger picture, a, a much bigger reality. And as we talked about last week, that you'll never really be able to understand the trials, the challenges, the suffering you go through, unless you have some view of this bigger picture of this bigger reality, that there is, that there's a spiritual battle going on. And somehow we actually find ourselves in the middle of it, but especially this church in Pergamum. So, So Jesus is saying, you know, that persecution you've been experiencing, there's actually a spiritual battle going on behind that. So he's given them some perspective, some understanding of what they're going through. Uh, and, and in this case, uh, of course, the instrument of that attack has been the Roman government and their, and their, uh, the powers that be there. Uh, but of course, as we read here, that, that persecution got so bad that it even led to the death of a guy named Antipas. And this is one of the earliest uh, recorded uh, Christian martyrs uh, that we know about. And, and Jesus is saying to them, though, that in spite of all of this persecution, in, in spite of this demonic onslaught, you have been faithful to me. So he's just like cheering them on. He's like, you've been faithful to me. You, you did not renounce your faith in me, even when you were impre- rather threatened. And she's like, way to go. He's like, way to go. He is encouraging them. He is cheering them on. They were kind of like Polycarp, who we read about last week, who just did not shy away from his faith, even when he was threatened with violence and, and, and even ultimately death. And uh, by the way, just uh, I think it's important to know that these kinds of things actually still happen in the world today. Uh, I've heard Heidi Baker share, who is just an amazing ministry. Uh, mostly it's rooted in, in Mozambique and Africa. And she's had, you know, many times, or someone will just put, put an AK-47 in her face. But she is just so full of the Holy Spirit. She's just so connected to Jesus that she, like, she isn't even phased by it. Sometimes, this is kind of crazy, she even laughs. I mean, she's just like, it's just, it's unbelievable, but she's just like so rooted in Christ, this God, this Emmanuel God who is with her, that she's just not even phased by it. And I mean, I could tell uh, all kinds of stories. I mean, I, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. But uh, needless to say that, that this, is a, this is actually an ongoing reality, and that this is a reminder for us. I'm so glad today that we prayed for the persecuted church. Because there are people who are still facing this kind of thing today. It's so, so important that we remember that. So Jesus is affirming this. He's like, way to go. You, you, you've stayed true to me. You've, you've not uh, renounced your faith in me, even in spite of all these uh, persecutions and threats. So he's, he's just cheering them on. So, so this letter starts with affirmation. Then Jesus goes on to really address a problem in uh, this church. And so in verses 14 through 15, they read this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's some among you, so not, not everyone, but, but some. There's some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin 
so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you can keep that up on the screen. So here's what's happening here. So uh, Satan came against this church with tremendous persecution, uh, with violence, uh, with assault uh, from the outside. Yet this church kept the faith. It did not shrink back. Uh, it did not renounce Christ. So Satan's like, okay, so that didn't work. So what else could I do here? And, and so he's like, if I can't discourage these people out of the faith, I'm going to try a new strategy. And I'm going to see if I can seduce them out of the faith. If I can't discourage it out of them, maybe I can seduce it out of them. And I'm going to try to seduce them in to compromise. And that's really what's going on in this church. And, and we, know, we don't know exactly who, there's a reference here to the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly who they were. We don't have a, a lot of uh, precise information on them. But you'll see as you look at these verses that there is, uh, that there's, there's, there's a parallel being drawn in these uh, verses. Uh, at the top it says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then at the end it says, those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you see that, the, again, there's this parallel uh, being drawn. And what we can infer from this is that the way that Balaam led the Israelites astray in the Old Testament is the same way the Nicolaitans are, are leading, is leading the church in Pergamum astray uh, in, in this context. There's this parallel. Now you might wonder, well, who, who's Balaam, right? So to understand this, we need to know who, who's Balaam. Well, uh, he's someone we read about in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, in chapters 22 through uh, 24, so that's one of the uh, first books in the Old Testament, and, and we read that he was, he was uh, a false prophet, and a guy named Balak, who is the king of Moab, hired him as sort of like a spiritual hitman. That's the best way I can put it. He was like a spiritual hitman, and he hired him to curse the people of Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land. So, so Balak, he sent for Balaam, and he's like, hey, Balaam, I, I have a job for you, and I will pay you very well, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to curse the people of Israel as they are on this journey trying to get into the promised land. I don't want that to happen. I want you to curse them. I want you to call down curses upon them, and I will pay you very well to do this. And so Balaam's like, cool, sounds good, deal, I'll, I'll do it, no problem. And so Balaam, we read, uh, he goes up this mountain, and he tries to curse the people of Israel, but instead, when he opens his mouth, instead of curses, blessings come out. <laughs> it's this amazing story. And so he comes down, he speaks to Balak, the king, and he's like, uh, and the king's like, hey, what are you doing? I told you to curse him. He's like, I tried. And when I opened my mouth, like, like blessings came out. And, and so he tries again, but the same thing happens. And so it's just not working. And eventually it's like, hey, I have an idea. You know, if this frontal assault isn't working, if this attempt to curse, kind of directly attack and curse the people of Israel, if that's not working, I've got another idea. Let's try a more indirect method. Let's see if we can seduce them. And, and let's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send some Moabite women into the Israel camps, camps to seduce them into engaging in idolatrous ceremonies and, and feasts and, and, and sexuality. And, and then maybe God will kind of just curse them for us. And so this is the plan they had. And guess what? The strategy actually worked. The Israelites, we are told in, in Numbers chapter 25, that they, they were in fact seduced into following other gods. It says they bowed down to these other gods, even though not that long ago, God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and yet they're seduced rather quickly into uh, worshiping uh, other gods. And, and so 
Jesus is, is pointing to this story and he's like, this is what's happening in your church. This is what's happening in, in Pergamum. Pergamum, tr- Satan tried to take you down through persecution. You weathered that. You, you, you did awesome. You, you, you didn't give in. But so now he's coming at you a different route. He's, he's, he's trying to seduce you out of the faith. And, and so he sent the Nicolaitans really to kind of seduce the church away from faithfulness to Jesus and his teachings. And really the way they're going about this is really kind of a theology of compromise uh, with the surrounding culture. And, and the idea is, is basically this. It's just like, hey, you know, let's just, you know, relax. Pagan feasts, like, what's the big deal? It's just food, right? And so there's kind of a, kind of a hollowing out of their theology uh, or, you know, partaking with things like, you know, this would have been common in this cultural context, temple prostitution, like sex was a part of the religious uh, observance. So when it refers to sexual immorality here, that was in the context of pagan celebration. So he's like, you know, they're like, hey, what's, what's the big deal? You know, why can't you be a Christian and do all these other things? You know, why can't we have Jesus and idols? What's, what's wrong with it? That's basically the idea here that this is sort of a, an approach or what we might call syncretism, okay? Now, unfortunately, we read that this, this is a strategy at worked, at least for, for some uh, in the church. Uh, not everyone embraced this, but it says some, but even who, those who didn't embrace this, Jesus is actually confronting them because they're actually doing nothing to address this in the church. So there's kind of the, those who are actually embracing this, but then those who are just kind of so passive, they're just kind of standing it back and just not doing anything to address uh, this issue. And so Jesus says, repent. And so we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Came across a great quote by a guy named Frederick Beekner. Uh, looks like Boichner, but it's pronounced Beekner, just FYI. <laughs> and he says this, he says, we live in a world and a world lives in us. That's such a great quote. We live in a world, and the world lives in us. You see, see, we are influenced by the culture around us. And, and whether we realize it or, or not, it can kind of get in us. And, and if, if you're not careful, kind of gradually, over time, your thinking, your, your values, your allegiance can shift just ever so gradually away from Jesus. And you can sort of be seduced in, into what we might call compromise. And that's really what's happened with many in this church at Pergamum. Now, I want to make clear that this is a word to a church here. So this isn't like a word of like Jesus coming down on the culture. You know, Jesus isn't expecting non-Christians to behave like Christians. Okay, so that's not the point here. He's speaking a word to a church uh, who, who knows uh, his ways. And so he's like, hey, uh, this, this is, this is uh, you, guys have, you guys have really been seduced here by something that's really dangerous. And so, so he's, 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 he's bringing truth to this situation. Uh, now, just to bring this home a bit, uh, you know, culture then, culture now, really uh, isn't uh, concerned, really doesn't mind if you call yourself a Christian. No one's too worried about that. You know, if you wear a little cross around your neck, you know, if you, if you do hashtag blast in your Instagram feed, you know, Satan isn't too threatened by that. You put a fish in your car, he's not too worried about it. Um, um, so long as uh, you keep Jesus as just sort of like a brand experience, that you, kinda, you maybe wear the label, he, he's very unconcerned about that. So long as your true allegiance isn't to him, in other words, to Jesus, is to something or someone else. But what makes Satan tremble 
is when people are like all in for Jesus. When people just just give their lives to Jesus and follow him, uh, that that's what, what, what really makes him tremble. And that's why he's coming really hard against uh, this church because they had a, a tremendous start. Now, just to kind of illustrate this, there's a, there's a really interesting story in the book of Acts about some guys named the sons of Sceva. And these are guys who were going around. They didn't really know Jesus. They weren't really following Jesus. They weren't really surrendered to Jesus, but they were going around. They thought, but they still thought Jesus was cool. And so they were going around using his name to try to cast demons out of people. So they thought that must sound like fun to do. And, and so they're trying to do this. Well, one day they, they, they encountered a guy who was, who was like really demonized and a demon spoke through this man and said, I know, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? And then he proceeded to beat the snot out of these guys. And what that reveals is, is that, again, what, what the kingdom of darkness is afraid of is not people who just kind of wear a Jesus label uh, or just kind of, you know, as a talisman or something, but really who are people who are really, again, like Paul, Paul, like, hey, we know Paul. Hey, we don't want anything to do with Paul. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's the people who are sold out for Jesus, who are really following, who are giving their lives for him. And, 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 and there are many in this community who are doing that. And so that's why Satan's coming so hard against these people, trying to seduce them out of that, because that is what he fears more than anything else. Because those are the people through whom God's presence and power and love and mercy can just flow through. And so that's why there's this battle going on in, in this context. And, and um, I, I believe, though, this is just so relevant. Because I, I think, you know, the, the, the challenge we face is not so much in, in our cultural context, not so much like we saw last week in terms of this overt persecution uh, that, that, you know, people are, you know, people are being put to death around here for the faith in Jesus, but is really more this temptation just to kind of little by little, just kind of inch by inch, just to kind of compromise until eventually you find yourself when it's like, wait, where, where, where am I now? Like you just kind of drifted to some different place. And so I, I think this is so relevant. So Jesus, he, he affirms this church in Pergamum for not renouncing their faith in him, for, for staying true amidst this heavy persecution. But he's also confronting them about this compromise that has arisen in their midst. And so he says in verse 16, repent. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, sometimes it's said that to repent is to change your mind. And, and that's part of it. Uh, but if you leave it there, you kind of miss something really important because it's not just to change your mind. Really what this involves is, is a whole life turn. So repentance is, is, is about turning. It's about turning from something and then turning to something. Okay, so it's about turning from, from, uh, from, from sin, from idols, from, from compromise, anything that would draw you away from the love of God and then turning to or turning back to him. That, that is really what, 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 what this is. And uh, I know sometimes people hear that word through maybe like a harsh filter. So just to maybe help you get a better grasp on what this is and Jesus' heart behind this, I want to share just an illustration. This is my favorite illustration uh, of this. So this comes from the classic 1980s movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, <laughs> starring Steve Martin and the late, great John Candy. Now, in this movie, Martin and Candy are these two guys. They're traveling. They're trying to make it back to Chicago for Thanksgiving when just all these, like pretty much every travel nightmare that can happen, it happens. I mean, everything, the rent-a-car, the airplane, like everything, all this stuff happens. And, and, but there's this one just classic scene. And in this scene, Martin and Candy, they're, they're driving down a highway at night. 
And previously they hit a patch of ice and they, they got spun around. But then after they kind of, the car stopped spinning, uh, they get back on the road and they now are, are driving down this freeway and they think they're going the right way. <laughs> but as they're driving down this freeway, a car kind of pulls up alongside, kind of like on a frontage road and it's kind of keeping pace with them. It's kind of like motioning at them with like hand signals. And they're like, what's going on? Eventually they get the cue. Oh, they want us to roll down our window. Okay. So, so eventually Martin, who's on the passenger side, he rolls down a window and this couple in the other car, they yell out the window, you're going the wrong way. Martin's like, what? And they scream again, you're going the wrong way. Martin turns to Candy at this point, who's driving, and he, he kind of nonchalantly, kind of like in disbelief, like, just like, he says we're going the wrong way. Like, who does this guy think he is? And, and Candy's like, oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? And so he's like, oh, thanks, you know, toot, toot. Thanks so much, you know, okay, you know. And they're just totally blowing these people off. They think they're drunk or something. They're like, thank you. You know, thanks a lot. Uh, but the couple in the other car persists. And, and they're now yelling louder, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going the wrong way. And just in time, Candy and Martin look up to realize they are headed into oncoming traffic. That there are these two big semis coming right toward them. And it's just this perfect picture of the call to repent. See, it's not spoken out of being harsh or judgy or like uptight. This is spoken out of love. I once worked at a church and the senior pastor who was a friend and who was my boss, he always said, you know, if I'm ever about to drive off a cliff, please, would you tell me? Would you tell me? That's what you do. When someone's about to drive into oncoming traffic, you tell them, right? You say, you warn them. Right? And so that's really the heart behind this from Jesus is love. He cares about this church so much. And what's also fascinating is that Candy and Martin, they thought the whole time they were going the right direction. They were so convinced they were going the right direction. It reminds me of Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. So when Jesus said to says to Pergamum, in a sense, to us, repent. What he's saying is, you're, you're going the wrong way. You, you need to turn around, to turn, turn back to me. And not just partly, but fully, you need to turn around. Because he, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And, and so when we really turn our hearts toward idols, even though we might, in the moment, think, oh, what's the big deal? We're actually turning away from life. Uh, and, and that will eventually catch up with us. And I think it's important to note that Idolatry isn't just limited to things like, you know, worshiping Zeus or, you know, golden calves. Sometimes we can just feel like, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, I mean, anything can be an idol, actually. It's like, what is like the, the greatest thing? Like, what is it that you regard above all else? That, that's really an, an idol in your life. You know, what do you, you know, when, when you're not really trying to think, what kind of, where, where is the, what's kind of like the, the true north of your mind? Where does your heart and your mind go? Uh, that, that can, can reveal, and it can be even good things, like good things, like, for example, think of the big three, uh, sex, money, and power, that even though each of these things are, are, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, good things, but, but they can actually become and function as idols in our hearts, in, in our lives. Uh, just one illustration of this, First uh, Timothy 6, verse 10, says this, it says, for the love of money, now note, doesn't say money. Sometimes this gets misquoted. It's not money. It says the love of money. In other words, that becomes an idol for you. That is uh, the root of all kinds of evil. 
And it goes on to say, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith. And that's, that's, that's where idolatry leads you. It leads you away from the true faith. And, and note this, that many have done this. It says, quote, pierced themselves with many sorrows. And, and, and so when we, when we give our hearts to idols, actually we, we pierce ourselves with sorrows. And Jesus is like, I don't want that for you. I want you to know life. I want you to know life with me. So turn around, repent, you're going the wrong way. That, that, that is what, what Jesus is, is saying here. But I also want to point out that this, this, this actually, this call to repent, uh, people sometimes overlook this, but this is actually a message of hope. Because think, think of what this presupposes, that if, if, if Jesus is saying repent, what does that mean? It means change is possible. That means the way you're living your life now, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay stuck going that direction. You can actually turn like a turn, like a change, a breakthrough is possible in your life. And for me, that's just such an encouraging word. This, this is actually a word. This is not a word of condemnation. This is a word of hope. This is a word of encouragement. Hey, change is possible that you can turn your life to me, that I, I'm inviting you, I'm calling you to turn to me. And so such, such a word of hope. Now, verse 17, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to uh, the churches. So if you're here today, if you hear Jesus speaking to you, listen to that, receive whatever he's saying to you. And he goes on to say, to the one who is victorious, in other words, the one who hears Jesus' call and and, and really hears and and responds and, and repents and lives into that, he says, quote, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This this is so cool. Uh, So two things are being promised here for those who actually heed this call and and who who, who repent, and it's fulfillment and identity. Fulfillment and identity. So, so what's this reference to, to hidden manna? Well, in the Old Testament, manna is, is how God fed his people in the wilderness. So this is about provision. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. In other words, I, I, I'm, the one, I'm the one that really truly satisfies you. And he says, if you overcome, I will give you hidden manna. Now, what does it mean to say it's hidden? Well, it means that, first of all, it's not visible. Uh, and, and, and so we, we kind of maybe have this in part right now, but we don't have the full thing. We don't fully see it. Uh, we don't fully experience it. Uh, but one day we will, when, when Jesus returns, when his kingdom is consummated, that we will experience the fullness uh, of this. And so that means in part that we have to wait on this, but that there's this reward for those who persevere. There's this hidden manna. And really a contrast is being drawn here between the hidden manna on the one hand and on the food sacrifice to idols on the other. So Jesus is saying, you know, you can have the food sacrifice to idols right now, but it will only leave you empty. It will only leave you enslaved and ultimately it will exclude you from the feast that's to come, the wedding feast of the lamb. Or you can have this hidden manna that you might not fully see right now. You might get glimpses of it. For example, every week we celebrate communion. That's sort of a foretaste. That's sort of a foreshadowing of this hidden manna. So we get these like these little glimmers, but one day we'll experience the full thing. And, and so he's saying, this, this is my promise, this, this fulfillment that you get a foretaste of now, but will come in even greater measure at the end when I return. And so that's really the, the first promise here, this fulfillment, this hidden manna. Uh, but the second thing he says is, I'm going to give you a, a white stone. And basically he says that this white stone is a, a new name. Um, and um, 
I will also give that person, he says, a white stone with a new name written on it. So, so he, he's, he, he's offering here, he's promising a, a new name. And, and the cool thing is that this is like such an intimate reality that this will only be known to the person who receives it. Now, if you thought Harry Potter was cool, like the kingdom of God is like so much cooler. And like, you know, like Harry Potter, like, okay, this hat that sorts people in the different houses or whatever. Like, this is like, for me, like, this is so cool. Like, there's like, you receive a stone with your name on it that no one else knows. Like, this is, I don't know. Maybe I lost some of you, but I, 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 sorry, but I just, you know, I just think this is cool. And obviously there's a sense of mystery here, but think, think about this. So, uh, you know, spouses often have like, they have maybe like a name for each other that no one else knows. Like this, what this is, this is like a, this is like an, an image or uh, an expression of, of this tremendous uh, intimacy that's being promised here by the God uh, of the universe. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a new identity, and, and I have a name for you that is between you and, and me, and I'm inviting you into a life of intimacy with me. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new name. I'm forgiving you of your past, and, and, and you will no longer be defined by your weaknesses, by your past trauma or abuse or addictions or your old identity constructs, but you are now my beloved, you are mine, and I am giving you a new name. I'm putting that over you. Isn't that beautiful? And so he says, I'm, I'm giving you a new uh, identity. These old I- identities aren't what define you anymore. I'm giving you a new name bought by my shed blood. Names like forgiven and redeemed and restored and renewed uh, for, for his kingdom forever. And, and this is really what he offers to those who turn to him in repentance. So it's just this beautiful, beautiful promise. Um, ben, why, why don't you come back up? So just by way of application, just kind of as we close today, just, uh, just, just think for a moment. What, what, is, what is God saying to you today? We're going to take a moment just in, in silent prayer and reflection. Just, just what, what is God saying uh, to you today? And, and, and is there something maybe that uh, he's convicting you of? Is there something he's calling you to turn from today, to repent of it so you can turn back to him?